Hey guys, how are you? I'm doing pretty great. And I felt the need to get real here for a second, that's why I'm almost whispering. Um, because I think I'm in love. And I don't know exactly how or when that happened, but it must have been somewhere during the last couple of weeks. And I just felt this incredible sensation of butterflies and happy feelings. And I wanted to share this with you. I know, I know this is all emotional stuff on this historic podcast, but that's just how it is. Uh, this is how I feel. And I wanted to share the fact that I'm in love with radio. Ladies and gentlemen, step on up, step on up. Welcome to episode 5 of Walrus and the Bear, the podcast where I, Walrus, take on the intricate and wildly fascinating city that is Berlin. Every episode, I visit one of Berlin's historic highlights, taking along with me someone that is not originally from this city. In this week's episode, we visit the Soviet War Memorial. So you know the film, uh, or you know the book and the film June? Kind of looks like something out of that. But before we actually get to the Soviets, I wanted to get back to the pseudo-trickery on the beginning of the episode, the I'm in love with radio bid. Because I actually was not joking. I really feel like I have stumbled on something extremely special in the last couple of weeks, and I've been quite emotional about it. My friends who I visited in Amsterdam and Valencia can vouch for that. I've been talking podcasts and installing podcast apps on many phones last week. Because to me it feels like as if you have stepped into a library for the first time in your life. And you just realize you actually know how to read the things that await you. Just wow. And it hasn't got so much to do with the making of The Walrus and the Bear Show. I mean, I love making these episodes, but it hit me when I enveloped myself in shows like Radiolab, Strangers, and Love and Radio. There was a moment I was walking in the middle of the street somewhere, and I had to stop because I was sort of choking up, listening to someone pouring its heart out over some missed love. Listening to something like that, without the images, it's so intimate, it's so close, you feel part of it and it resonated with me like no book or film in the last couple of years have yeah i i know i'm i'm hooked for those who are already addicted you know what i'm up against for those of you who just listen to my podcast and with those of you i mean my parents and probably the scandinavian couple i met on my fishing trip to Göteborg, go and explore download an app subscribe to shows there's a whole world waiting to be heard dino dinolentis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. I had like the same experience because I was doing um, a shorter route mm -hmm. and I decided I needed to make my route longer. So I just kept running. So this is Jeffrey John King speaking about his usual jogging route. Yes. And then discovered it. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I never even heard of it. Like, uh, it's, uh, yeah, and it's a crazy place. A crazy place? A scene from Dune? What else is there to describe today's topic? It's, it's really this kind of scene from, have you seen the film Equilibrium? Equilibrium? Really? What the hell are we up against here? 
Well, it's actually one of the hidden treasures of which Berlin has so many. On today's show, we visit the Soviet War Memorial in Treptower Park. Ho, 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 man, take a chill pill with your Slabadrovaya. First, who do I have with me? Yes, seven-time world champion haiku master Jeffrey John King, who just happens to be an amazing chef as well. I met him on one drunken evening, and I believe we tried to discuss and solve every world problem on a diet of bar peanuts and craft beer. All right, back to the Soviets. Today's episode is about the Soviets and the impact they had on the city of Berlin. And before we get into that, I have to make one clear distinction. That between the Soviets and the Russians. Because they're not the same. Russia was part of the Soviet Union. A communist state existing roughly between the rise of Lenin in the early 20s of the 20th century and the fall of the Soviet state in 1991 when Gorbachev resigned. Good evening. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. One of the reasons why many people have them mixed up is because Russia was the biggest of the 16 Soviet states. Power lay in Moscow and basically all of the other states were forced to learn Russian. But there is another reason why specifically we, Westerners, confused the both of them. And that reason has its historic roots in a conflict that is still present today. The ongoing question, how European is Russia? For centuries, there has been a territorial struggle between several major powers in the east of Europe, with Russia winning and losing ground over the years. So the incorporation of neighboring states by Russia into the so-called Soviet Union, the Union of Workers' Councils, can be placed easily in this historic battle for influence. Hence the reasons why many people don't consider differentiating between the two. Now, I'll come back why it's actually really important to make this distinction, especially when we get to something like a Soviet war memorial. But let's discover the side first. So, I'll set the stage. We're in former East Berlin in Treptower Park. And in the middle of the park, hidden behind the trees, there's a gigantic rectangular space with at the head a huge 12 meter high statue. There's other sculptures as well. There's a pond, two monoliths, and a long sloping hill. But everything is orchestrated for you to be directed towards the statue. Yeah, like it's all focused in on that huge statue over there. Because, I mean, you can't see how big that is, but that's absolutely massive. How massive is it? Well, it's 12 fucking meters high. And on top of that, it's on a hill. The massive statue is placed on a pedestal that's placed on a pedestal, that is placed on a hill. As I said, it's just too much. It's just so over the top. I mean, like, look at the guy's impression, like, I mean, expression, sorry. It's uh, the most kind of manly, masculine, warrior thing that you could possibly have. And he's carrying a huge sword that's half the size of his body. I mean, it looks like something out of a a manga series. Yes, I just wanted to say. (laughs) This overdrawn. And then he's holding a baby. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, the baby needs to be rescued. 
Yeah, but, you know, he's holding a sword on the other hand. It's not safe. <laughs> Yes, so the main statue is a male figure, a stern and determined looking, what I guess is a soldier, but he does not have a helmet on or a rifle or anything. Now this man is wearing a long heavy cape and in his right hand he has this massive sword, not something you would immediately reckon to be handy fighting equipment in World War II. Then in his left hand he's carrying a small child and on top of all of this, the harsh-looking man figure is trampling a broken swastika. That's right. Kind of a statement, huh? And I really like the, uh, the sculpture style because it's that kind of over-the-top, blocky, we're working class, we're not going to be fancy kind of architecture. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's, it's trying really hard to be like imposing and masculine and powerful, and uh, which is what I find a bit ridiculous. Like It's so... Imposing, it almost becomes silly. <laughs> and on the bottom of the monument, it says, Die Heimat wird ihre Helden nicht vergessen. The homeland will not forget its heroes. So, hey, what are we looking at here specifically? Who in his right mind would build such an incredible and megalomaniacal structure right in the middle of Berlin? Well, the Soviets did, and not without any good reason. Right before Germany invaded Poland, it signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, ensuring a stable eastern front and carving up Poland between the two of them. The treaty was not long-lived when on the 22nd of June, 1941, Adolf Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, an invasion into the Soviet Union, towards Russia, the Baltic States and the Ukraine. As I mentioned earlier, there has always been a tension between the powers in Eastern Europe, between the Prussians, for example, the Austrian-Hungarians and the Russians. But there's also camaraderie between especially Germany and the Russians. Right after the First World War, when Germany was defeated, it was decided that it could not have a major army anymore. In between wars, however, the German high command made a secret deal with the Soviet Union to train soldiers and have war factories on Soviet territory, thus successfully bypassing the sanctions laid upon them in the Treaty of Versailles. It was on Soviet soil that the Germans managed to rebuild their armies that would later prove so devastating in the Second World War. Then, how is it possible that even with the non-aggression pact between the two powers, Hitler still decided to invade the Soviet Union? Why did he open a second front on the east and against such a huge opponent? Well, first of all, because he thought he could win. The idea in Germany of the Soviet Union at the time was, sure, it's a big country, but they're economically and militarily lacking behind. And with a so-called Blitzkrieg, a lightning war, we have them on their knees before Christmas. In the expansion of Germany, in their quest for more Lebensraum, their hunger for living space for the German people, their main gaze was directed towards the east. German settlers would move into Poland, the Baltic states, western Russia and the Ukraine, effectively occupying and ruling over their Slavic neighbors. And that brings us to the third reason for the invasion, racial ideology. In Hitler's mind, the Slavic people living in the East were untermenschen, subhumans, not worthy of living. Hitler even saw the Bolshevik Revolution 
that eventually led to the creation of the Soviet Union as a Jewish conspiracy that formed an immediate threat for his ideal Aryan society. So if you just managed to evoke hatred and fear of all these people among your own German citizens, you just might get them willing to fight a war of annihilation. That is what Hitler wanted for his front in the East, a war of annihilation, an absolute merciless approach to everything that stood in its way. It was going to be one of the bloodiest conflicts the world had ever seen. And then, of course, there is corn and resources like steel and oil, all in the East, all necessary for continuing the war, and in Hitler's eye, ripe for the picking. So these are just some of the arguments that led Nazi Germany to invade the Soviet Union. Right after the break, we'll talk about how this operation would prove to be the worst decision in Hitler's campaign to take over Europe. But first, a word from our sponsor. There is no sponsors, you silly dumpling-sucking sweethearts. This is where I talk about me, Walrus, and his quest on finding out what he wants to do with his life. And in the beginning of the show, you might have gotten a hint of where things are developing towards. I really do like radio, and I've been listening to a lot of it lately. I also went to see a live show of Radio Spätkauf the other day, an English-spoken podcast that brings you Berlin's local news. But I also have been working on another project for which I flew all the way to Ibiza last week, interviewing a very intriguing man. I cannot give away too much yet because I don't know exactly how the story is developing, but I'll keep you posted. And then there is some new music coming up for the podcast, produced by a very special someone that goes by the name of Outskirt Painters. You'll hear from this man, he's going to be a big name. So yeah, I'm working, I'm thinking, I'm processing and reflecting, yeah... Things seem to be going in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. But we're not there yet. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Until that time, until that time, <clears throat> until that time, back to the Soviets. And here we are, back again, with the Nazis invading the Soviet Union in 1941. And them thinking, it'll all be over before the winter kicks in. But unfortunately for them, it was not. The Nazis made a terrific effort, covering immense distances in an incredibly short period of time. The Soviet troops were no match for the advanced equipment of the Germans, and the complete surprise with which they were overtaken. On the 2nd of December, 1941, the Germans can see Moscow the capital of the Soviet Union. And then, winter comes. The Germans were not prepared for winter. They had no winter uniforms or winter gear. And that would prove disastrous for the rest of the campaign. That, and a couple of huge strategic mistakes made by Hitler himself. The fighting would continue until 1943, with no real ground won on either side. And then, when the Soviets had regrouped and reorganized, the counter-offensive really began. The German troops were driven back slowly but steadily towards their own capital. In 1944, the Western Front is reopened again, when the Western Allies landed on Normandy Beach. And from this moment, things are looking really grim for the Germans. 
So now to give you a perspective of how these two fronts related to each other, the Western and the Eastern Front, throughout the Second World War, I'll provide you with some numbers now. I want to say that these numbers are disputed and with different countries coming to different conclusions, the following numbers are an estimate. But I think it's really important to realize how much more brutal and severe the Eastern Front was in comparison to the Western Front. In the entire Second World War, there's over 5 million German soldiers being killed. We're speaking of soldiers being killed, not wounded. And also, these numbers leave civilian casualties out of the equation, of which, especially in the East, there were many, many millions. Five million German soldiers get killed during the entire Second World War. Of those five million, there is 400,000 that got killed on the entire Western Front. That is, from the moment in 1940 that Germany started to invade countries like the Netherlands, Belgium and France, all the way to D-Day and the Allies driving the Germans back towards their own capital, 400,000 German soldiers got killed. Roughly the same amount of Americans lost their lives, 400,000, the British lost 380,000 men and the French toward 200,000. Incredible amounts of people getting killed. But then, if you realize that the other 4.6 million German soldiers got killed on the Eastern Front, you understand where I'm going. That's over 10 times as many men getting shot, bombed or simply frozen to death. In the Battle of Stalingrad alone, half a million German soldiers never made it. A gruesome fact. Now on the Soviet side, things are looking even grimmer. It is reported that over 10 million Soviet soldiers got killed during the entire Second World War. 10 million. Fighting over the capital of Nazi Germany costed the lives of 80,000 Soviet troops. It happened in a mere two weeks. Yet again, compare that for example to D-Day where roughly 2,500 American soldiers got killed and you get an idea of the extremities the people from the East had to go through. Now let's go back to the Soviet War Memorial in Treptow Park because I think it's necessary to understand why there's not one, not two, but three of these huge Soviet war memorials inside of the city of Berlin. They pay tribute to the incredible amounts of people that were just thrown into the fire by their dictator, Josef Stalin, who had no regard to individual human life. But many say that without this sacrifice, Hitler might have succeeded and the world would have looked completely different. The monuments in Berlin not only function as glorification, but also are burial grounds for soldiers. Over 5,000 Soviet soldiers are buried at Treptower Park. And it's also at this moment that I want you to realize that it is important to make the distinction between Russians and Soviets, because by calling the Soviets Russians, especially in the case of this war memorial, you'd fail to realize the many millions of men fighting against fascism that were not Russians. They were Ukrainian, Belarusians, Georgians, Lithuanians, Armenians, and many more. They would lose their commemoration if it was just a Russian war memorial. But then again, how does this glorification really work? Is it really for the soldiers that died fighting for a greater cause? Would they stand behind this post-war relic like the Soviet war memorial? I'm, I'm not a fan of, of uh, worshipping soldiers or veterans. I think it's not good for the soldiers either because 
when I've spoken to soldiers, they're not proud of what they do, and then they come home and they get all this hero worship stuff, and it's like nobody's talking to them, or listening to them, or seeing them as people. And this hero stuff is, uh, yeah, it's just propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it at all. And I, I really hate, like, uh, um, when people say, how dare you say this about these soldiers, they died for your country. And I'm like, I mean, we have to talk about it, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's uh, my, I mean, my grandfather was in World War II, and he was one of the people who bombed Dresden. And that means that, he was involved in the murder of women and children and I spoke to him about it and he was like all his family died in the London Blitz and most of his friends and he didn't do it for some high-minded reason he he did it because he was told it was the right thing to do and he became a bomber because he wanted to get revenge it wasn't like and there's nothing positive about it and afterwards he was really depressed about it and unhappy and yeah I really think uh yeah, hero worship's kind of awful. And on the glorification of the Soviet soldiers specifically? I, but that's, I actually think in a way it's not commemorating them because they were basically poor, illiterate, uh, working class people who were forced at gunpoint to invade a country. And after months and months and months of starvation and deprivation, they're given guns and told to go kill a bunch of people. And then loads of them died, and they had this awful experience. And then afterwards, they try and pretend it's um, a uh, something to celebrate, like hero, heroic. What they did is heroic, and it wasn't. It was a bunch of people starving and dying who wouldn't want to see this. They wouldn't want this at all. I mean, this is for us later to rewrite the story and say these brave soldiers who went and died for our country when it's, you know, a bunch of... Poor people, yeah, dying in the mud, <laughs> in the snow. And here's why I'm intrigued by the memorial as we're standing in front of it. I'm moved by it. It hits me with its raw, uncut physicality. Understanding the horror of the Eastern Front, the absolute brutality on both sides, and the unfathomable sacrifice that was made to free Europe from fascism, it seems unlikely that a monument glorifying these soldiers were to be poorly received. And still, that is exactly what happened. Even today, there's many people disliking these provocative war memorials in their city. Could you understand if people had a pro problem with this monument, per se? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was a teacher in Oxford, I had um, a load of Russian children with me. And uh, they lost the oars on their boats. And this uh, Polish woman... Um, they didn't speak any English she helped me speaking Russian to them and getting them to come back and she was like yeah I speak Russian because they forced me to at school because Russia invaded my homeland you know so like I get the problem and a lot of people who grew up in the DDR uh, despise this stuff like they absolutely hate it because like my housemeister was telling me he got beaten up by the police because he wouldn't do the jobs they wanted him to do you know, and so for them, this represents Stasi and everything bad that happened in the DDR. All right, so I would say, like, this monument, you can enjoy, we can enjoy this. If, if, if you were from the time or you're a German, then this could be an incredibly negative place. 
but for us, like, yeah, of course, like, Russians, you know, <laughs> conquered Berlin. This is where World War II ended. 30 million of them died. They need something to celebrate it. If you're from Berlin, it's, it's not going to be something you're really going to enjoy. But I think that history is more important than people's personal feelings. And it's totally right that this is here. I'm not totally behind the message. <laughs> but I, yeah, no, I think it's, a, it's fantastic. And it's like a reminder as well that, you know, yeah, but World War II ended here. Uh, with, you know, a few million Russians invading Berlin and, and in these sculptures getting given flowers and holding babies when in reality we know like <laughs> it was more raping and murdering and eating people but um but that makes this place even more important because you get like knowing what we know makes this place more fascinating more yeah. interesting more uh weird <laughs> it is weird it is fascinating it's cruel it's bad it's good it's difficult Standing on the site on such a beautiful day, the birds whistling and almost no one around, it's hard not to be overtaken by a certain feeling of awe, a very orchestrated emotional response. And these feelings are conflicting because you also know of the atrocities that the Soviets committed after the war was over, after the Germans had been beaten. The mass rape of German women, not just weeks, but years after the war ended, left deep emotional scars over several generations. The oppressive regime that was installed and later to be called the DDR would stay in power till the early 90s, for over 40 years. It's hard to see this monument, nor any of the other Soviet war memorials, as anything other than a way of shaping history. Leaving something behind as the victor, taking revenge for the atrocities that happened on your lands. And still, still it also feels foreign to me as a 28-year-old Dutchman living in the city of Berlin. It made me realize how far in the east Berlin actually lies. Way further than I could imagine. I, I challenge you, go look at a map and see how close it actually is to the Polish border. It's funny that we always consider it to be so western, while in fact its gaze has been so often to the east. But hey, that's an entirely different story. There's one last thing as a wrap-up. Also, it's just so beautifully maintained and clean, and you enter like any other park or monument in Berlin and they're like, you know, they're dirty and they don't have enough money to run the fountains and there's graffiti everywhere and there'll be like 20 guys I mean that's actually a point like there's, there's, there's no one sat on any of the benches just like drinking beer and smoking cigarettes like everywhere else I've been in Berlin and I can only think that it must be that local Berlinese aren't fans of this place I wonder who pays to maintain it, if Russia pays for it, or Berlin must have some kind of grant to pay for it because Berlin's so poor. <laughs> well, the first thing why people don't hang out here and drink beer probably has something to do with the fact that it's also being used as a cemetery. That's something we didn't quite realize at first, but it makes sense with the serene atmosphere in which you find yourself visiting the monument. Then, the question who pays for it is actually a very interesting one, because... After the wall came down and plans for reunification of East and West Germany were made, the four former allies, the United States, the Soviet Union, France and the United Kingdom, oversaw the negotiations in the so-called 2 plus 4 agreement. 
Not only were the two countries reunified, the four allies withdrew all claims they made on Germany, officially ending the post-war situation of Germany being under supervision. In these negotiations, the Soviet war memorials in Germany became a quintessential bargaining tool for the Soviet Union. They would only remove their troops from German soil if the German Federal Republic would promise to take care and honor the memorials, including the Central War Memorial in Treptow Park. Hence the reason that it's now under the official protection of the German state. If you ever come to Berlin, or if you're living here and you've never been to the memorial, go check it out. It will definitely blow your mind. Yes, lovely people of the world. I really hoped you enjoyed this episode. I had a great time making it and learned a lot about the Soviet Union in the last couple of weeks. For further listening on this topic, I highly recommend the podcast Ghosts of the Ostfront, a four-part series by Dan Carlin, dedicated to the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. It's a bit lengthier than my episodes, I think it's roughly five hours, but covers the campaign in amazing detail. I also believe this specific four-part series has been named the best historic podcast ever made. So definitely go check that out. Then, of course, a big thanks to Jeffrey King for his accompanying me to the memorial and leaving me with some fantastic insights. Mr. King, thank you very much. Uh, Jeffrey also hosts an incredible vegan curry night called Vegan Wednesdays. Every Wednesday at Mendy and Edeltraut on the Weserstrasse. Curry is only 4 euros and for 6 euros you get a premium beer. The curries are all handmade and absolutely delicious. Go check it out, Vegan Wednesdays at Mendy and Edeltraut. Yet again, a big shout out to the man who makes these delicious tunes, Mr. Denis Wouters, always bouncing behind my computer, man. Thank you so much. That is it. That's the episode. Next week, there's a special episode coming up, a road trip to Amsterdam, my hometown, during which I will talk with an extremely interesting man. I call him the Professor of Sleep. And it's a special episode because it's only going to be online for a limited amount of time. I'm going to include a lot of music from our trip, but it also means I have to buy rights and that's kind of expensive and apparently that goes per month. So in two weeks, tune in and check out the extra special limited edition Walrus and the Bear Super Road Trip to Amsterdam. For now, subscribe to iTunes. Just do it. Download a podcast app. It's all on my website how to do that. Subscribe to my show and many others and enjoy listening. And of course, if you just like what I'm doing and want to say hello, send me a message at hello at walrusandthebear.com. I'll promise to write something back, something nice, something lovely. Liebe Leute, enjoy and tschüss. Oh, 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 oh.